Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones, as always your host, and we come to you every Friday where we discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly roundup piece, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our weekly summary of what a Christian cosmopolitan spirit with a grace-infused passion for life would want to pay attention to out on the interwebs. In just a moment, I'll be joined by David Zoll and Sarah Condon to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I'll talk for a few moments with John Zoll, who is a rector and part of the Zoll family at the heart of Mockingbird and an all-around wonderful person someone who's got an extensive knowledge of music and film. So now, on to John Zoll. Welcoming to the Mockingcast for the first time, but no stranger to Mockingbird, as brother of the animating force of the zeitgeist, David Zoll, uh, and son of Paul Zoll, the Reverend Cannon, John Zoll, who is also probably, I think it's fair to say, right, the best Episcopal DJ, at, at least in North America. <laughs> That's very kind. There's, there, there's not a lot of competition for that title. Do you think there's some guys in England, though? But Believe it or not, there is a little. There's a little. There's a very gifted DJ in the Diocese of Texas named uh, Bertie uh, Pearson, who uh, is also the percussionist in a really great band called Poolside and has a history of playing in punk rock bands and is a great DJ who makes a lot of his own electronic music, too. So uh, he's out there. So if there was an American Idol DJ Episcopalian version, 15 contestants? Mm, that's probably pushing it. Now, I heard recently on the, actually the most recent episode of the Mockingcast, your brother said you only listened to music between 1976 and 1984. That's pretty accurate. I probably extend a little further into the 80s than that, so... I've got some stuff from 1986. I just ordered a bunch of records recently from the Ukraine, and quite a few of them are from 1985, 86, and 87. But that's the outer limits of uh, sort of the area that I've been exploring for the last probably, wow, about 10 years now. Well, if you you were going to say what the best band or artist from that period would be, who's it going to be? There are a few bands I really like. Uh, one band I totally love that nobody's ever heard of, but they're really great and everybody should look them up, is a band called Supermax, which is in and of itself an incredible title. And uh, they were an Austrian band. They were sort of somewhere between classic rock, funk, and uh, early electronic disco. And uh, they had a lead singer who was the bassist named Kurt Hauenstein, who was also a great producer in Austria in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And Supermax have about four killer LPs, and they're incredible. If you look them up on YouTube, 
you will find very rich material. And they were, you know, sort of coming out of, uh, you know, they grew up in post-World War II Germany. And there was definitely, I think, culturally a huge amount of guilt and shame about everything that had happened over there. And uh, as a result, almost all of their music is extremely um, pro-Africa and incredibly um, charged by wanting to tear down all racial division in the world. And they were the first white band or no, they were the first mixed race band to ever play a concert in um, post-apartheid South Africa. And uh, there's a lot there. But if people are wanting to look up a song or two by them, they should check out the song Spooky, which is incredible, or the song uh, Ain't Gonna Feel, probably my favorite, one of my all-time favorite songs, or a song called Fly With Me. That's just the top three that immediately come to mind. But they have songs that kind of are a little... Um, there's a sexual component to their music that might make some listeners very uncomfortable, but that's not, there's a lot more going on with Supermax than that. You so, made an incredible sale there. I'm actually, <laughs> when we're done, I'm actually going to listen to this. That was an incredibly strong if you, pitch. If you look up on uh, YouTube also, live footage of them playing, I think it's the song Love Machine. It'll blow your mind. Uh, at least it continues to blow my mind. But the song Ain't Gonna Feel, you'll find a YouTube clip. You won't find any live footage of it, but you can listen to the song Ain't Gonna Feel by Supermax. It is an absolutely sublime, genre-bending, otherworldly, incredibly cool song for the ages that I think is uh, its one of my you know desert island picks. If I could have 10 songs for the rest of my life, that one would be in the handful for sure. That's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, well, I'm an evangelist, you know. I like to sell. <laughs> now, you're going to be prominently featured at Mockingbird in New York City in April. You will be DJing a dance party, right? Yes. I'm so excited. We're going to call um that's we're going to have a a proper Episco disco in the basement of in the in the uh undercroft of St. George's Episcopal Church after the dinner on Friday night, which is going to be really fun and uh, something that's very open, not just to all the people from Mockingbird, but also anybody else in New York City who wants to come uh, dance and hang out and um, sort of enjoy the music that I get into. I will be dancing. I'm a oh, dancer. Good. I'm so glad. That's very important. Uh, I I think dancing's a wonderful thing. So, but I, yeah, I'm also doing a breakout session at that at that conference in the afternoon. And that's something I'm also pretty excited about, where I'll be basically set up, I think, with turntables and a microphone and an opportunity to just play a selection of very odd Christian records that most likely nobody there has ever heard. Uh, so, for example, a lot of people don't know that there is in the center of Sweden, there is a region that's sort of known as the Bible Belt of Scandinavia. And in the 1980s, there were lots of evangelical churches and Christians making music uh, and trying to be, you know, contemporary and who are really gifted. And there is, believe it or not, a small world of um, synthy sort of gospel music that was made in the 80s, this kind of quintessential 80s synth pop that all of which is, uh, you know, um, made 
to and for the glory of God. And it's uh, so I'll, I'll probably play some some evangelical Christian synth pop from Sweden. I'll play. Um, I have some uh, Prague music. There are a few, believe it or not, Prague masses that were made and, and petitioned by Roman Catholic churches. Uh, the main one being in Austria. Uh, there's a, a Prague band who were very popular in the sort of Prague world of, you know, Prague rock called Ela Craig, and they recorded an entire mass. And I'll definitely play their version of the Nicene Creed, which is, I think, a sublime and really cool piece of music. And uh, it definitely takes your thinking about the Nicene Creed to a whole new level. And I'll play, oh, I've got, um, a fair amount of funk, really weird, cool Christian funk. Um, so anyway, I'll be playing stuff like that. And I was just reading your essay from Mockingbird at the movies on Redbeard. And you say something that I, my first thought was, I resemble that remark. You said the first thing you need to know is about Redbeard is you probably haven't seen it, uh, which I haven't. Uh, so make the pitch for our listeners as to why they should take a couple hours, you know, by themselves with some friends or with their significant other Mm. and get some popcorn and sit and watch Redbeard. Okay. Well, it's my favorite movie. Um, and so there's a part of me that wrote that essay, uh, more out of, love and sort of wanting to share what it is about that movie that so touches me in a hope that it might connect with the reader. Uh, but it, the goal of the essay is not to really get people to watch it. Um, and there's a part of me that almost likes people having not seen it only because it's sort of my own little, it's my own little private thing that I savor. And whenever I think about it, and I would hate for people to go and watch it and sort of be disappointed. Uh, but it is an absolutely remarkable movie that was made by the famous Japanese director, Akira Kurosawa, who is, you know, I think in the uh, list of greatest movie makers of all time. He's probably regarded as one of the top five movie directors of all time in there with people like Rossellini and um, I don't know who else would be in that list. Uh, Orson Welles or... Um, John Ford, people like that. He is incredibly, um, he was a true genius behind the camera. And he made about probably 40 films. And he's um, just notorious for having made some of the most beautiful, insightful, deep movies ever made. So if somebody wants to get a feeling for him, they might start with the famous one uh, that's called The Seven Samurai. It's awesome and fun. And it basically created uh, sort of, modern act and Redbeard is a historic piece that sort of takes place in um, mid 19th century Japan during the sort of times of the shogunates. And so it's all sort of samurai type time period. And it's all this, it's the story of uh, a rural hospital for the poor that is run by a um, beloved doctor. Uh, At least he's loved by his patients and his name is Redbeard. He has a, a big, thick red beard, and his, he's played by the famous actor uh, Toshiro Mifune, who starred in 20 
uh, Kurosawa films. And this was actually the last film he ever did with Kurosawa because they had a falling out after this movie. And it took about a year and a half to make. And because he had this beard for the entire time, he couldn't work on any other movies. And that created a point of tension, too. But um, Mifune plays this, I would say, incredibly Christ-like um, doctor. And, you know, when we talk about Christ being the great physician who had such compassion for the sick and the poor, um, I think uh, anybody wants to think a little bit about what it means to call Christ the great physician um, would have a better understanding or a deeper understanding of that after watching Redbeard. Because you think, what does it mean for a doctor to truly be um, compassionate and um, to know what the patient needs and to know how to get the patient to take the medicine they need and who can properly diagnose the the real issues. And so um, for me, he's a, a fascinating um, meditation on um, just aspects of Christ that are um, so highlighted in the Gospels. So that's one thing, right? Um, but the movie portrays a series of pastoral encounters, basically, between this doctor and all kinds of different patients. So you have him talking with people on their deathbed. You have him spending time with people who have been abused. You have him spending time with um, the rich, gluttonous types. You have him especially uh, spending time with um, his young assistant. And the story really revolves around the plot of he he hires a young assistant to come and do his residency at this rural hospital. And the um, this young medical student is very full of himself and he is has great aspirations and he's quite gifted and he um, plans to become the doctor to the shogun of Japan. And he's very sort of upper class type um, guy. And when he discovers that his uh, residency has been um, put in the hands of this rural doctor at this not at all well-regarded, not at all well-funded hospital in the um, remote, uh, you know, region of the area, he, this young doctor is furious. His pride is just, it just, he goes ape and he uh, tries to sort of resist this call and he thinks too highly of himself in one sense. And also um, it just isn't what he envisions for himself at all. And so what ends up happening uh, is he is given a huge education, not just in medicine, but also in life as he is humbled and learns from this doctor, what actual medicine and what actual healing and what actual care is really all about. And it's, uh, he is sort of trained by, uh, Redbeard in the ways of caring for the sick. And it is, uh, you, so you sort of track the trajectory of this man who thinks he knows a lot and who discovers that he knows nothing and who discovers that the person he thinks knows nothing actually knows everything. And the one who is it, not at all attractive. Uh, ends up being the one that he, um, by the end of the movie, wants to serve and learn from and sit at the feet of for the rest of his life. And so the end of the movie, it's okay for me to spoil it, I think, ends with the um, 
Royal Hospital coming to the young doctor and offering him a job working at the top echelons of medicine for the most elite members of Japanese society. The job that he had originally wanted from the get-go that had sort of um, been his goal in life when he started out in medical school. And when he is finally, after years of residency with at Redbeard's Hospital, presented with the opportunity to um, have the job that he used to say was his dream job, he ends up turning it down to stay in the country and to run the hospital that Redbeard had been running for all these years. He ends up becoming Redbeard's replacement, who, um, and that's the only thing he wants to do because he now sees what life is really about. And so as you track with this young doctor um, and you see the wisdom um, and the way that that wisdom is learned by a person who is incredibly resistant to it, it just completely undoes me as a viewer every time. And so I like to watch the movie in little clips uh, where you watch sort of one interaction to the next. You watch what happens when Redbeard tells him to sit with a man who's dying on his deathbed. What does it do to a person to sit and listen and care for a person who is dying? When Redbeard says, go and spend time with this little girl who's been a horrible victim of abuse in a brothel, and he is told to care for her. What does it do to a person when they spend all of their time focusing on helping a poor little girl who's a victim of abuse? What does it do to this young man? What is it? What happens when he sees the shallowness of a rich man who is full of, um, who's really fat and who is just living entirely for himself when he sees that man through the eyes of um this doctor who spends all of his time caring for people who have nothing. What does it do uh, to this man when he sees um, a little girl uh, defending uh, a little boy who comes from a broken home? And there's a whole series of different interactions that he has uh, that are each of them totally profound. Um, what does it do? What happens to a person who spends time with a suicidal psychopath who um, really uh, is full of, um, you know, I mean, th these are the scenarios that this young doctor finds himself in when he ends yeah. up at his hospital and it just blows your mind. So You have made two successful sales for me, if not for any of our listeners, but I'm sure. Thanks for letting me go on so long, listeners and Scott. Well, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they'll feel the same way. I mean, I, you have an incredibly compelling way of talking about music and film and you'll also, people have the opportunity to connect with you and hear more from you in person and have a little back and forth with you. If they come to the conference in New York, Yeah, I would love John, thanks so much for spending time with us. And again, I hope lots of our listeners can connect with you live and in person for those who are not in the Charleston area in New York city. In April. Thank you, Scott, for the mocking cast and all you do to promote Mockingbird Ministries and the message of grace. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
All right. Welcome back to the Mocking Cast. I am here with three different people, three different states, one state of mind. Sarah Condon is back with us. She's in Texas. Hey. How are you, Sarah? Good. Good. She's priesting, momming, mm. living the dream in Texas. And as always, the here animating force of the zeitgeist <laughs> of Mockingbird, Mr. DZ, David Zoll himself. Hey, hey, Scott. Hey, Sarah. Hey. So we've got a lot of interesting things to talk about this. Where has the weather by you guys, by the way? David, you're in Virginia. Um, we had snow yesterday, but um, kids' schools were not canceled, so it's almost irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's almost better if you're a parent, like, for, this, for it not to be canceled. It's probably easier on you, yeah. right? I mean, are you kidding? Yes. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. uh, <laughs> snow days are something that change dramatically when you have kids. I mean, like, it's the opposite of what it was before. <laughs> the exact opposite, which, is not to, which actually can't be said about that many other things. Sarah, what's the weather like in Texas? Uh, it's gorgeous. This is like the best time to be in Houston. It's like 70 degrees. Oh, and we, and Mockingbird's going to be in Houston. And Tyler, near Tyler, Houston. Tyler. Yeah. Tyler, Texas, coming up. David, you want to say a quick uh, shameless plug about the conference in Tyler? Yeah, absolutely. I was um, on the phone yesterday with Bobette uh, Buster, who's coming to speak to us. And um, we're going to be talking about story, and we're going to be talking about grace, and we're going to be talking about all number of things. And the guy who puts it together, Matt McGill, who's a friend and just a, an extremely uh, – um, how do you describe him, Sarah? He's just a really wonderful guy. He's very he is, he's lovely. full of life. And uh, he's really caught the vision of what we're trying to do. And he's, he sort of has gotten the entire town behind this thing. So, you know, in a small uh, Texas town, which is, you know, historically is actually quite a, um important town in, in Texas, I guess. But he's gotten people that never talk to each other to kind of come together for – the funny thing is, is you know, uh, there's a Bible church involved and there's, I think, an Episcopal church involved and a Presbyterian church involved and there's a, there's a coffee grinder and a, um, a brewer. And, you know, we have to have the beer tasting in the Episcopal church <laughs> because they uh, – they, but we can have the coffee in the Bible church. But, I mean, honestly, everyone is extremely kind and we went down there last year and Sarah can tell you it was just – um, really, a really fun. They would kind of roll out the red carpet for everyone, not just for those who are speaking. Yeah, it's an amazing conference. If you can go, you should for sure. Is there like red carpet interviews? If there is, there like a fashion thing? Because I think I'm going to be there. So if yeah, there's well, a red carpet, literally, in. I'm going to p- plan my outfits <laughs> accordingly. I mean, <laughs> awesome. So, David, we've got. And also, we should say the conference in April in New York is coming up, too, which will be oh, awesome. Yeah. Sarah, you're speaking at that. Are you speaking at both, Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm speaking at both. Look at you. I know, right? Crazy. I yeah. love it. <laughs> uh, so that is April. What's the dates again, David? 14th, 15th, 16th. 14th, 15th, and 16th in New York City. All the information mm-hmm. is at ember.com so please yeah head over we there. should have uh menus available this week and um man this thing is shaping up to be yeah uh, just unbelievable I, I kind of i get i get nervous about us topping ourselves every year because that's the law but um <laughs> anyway i'm not the one in charge of organizing a lot of it and the person melina smith who's behind it is just so full of creativity and love and well and in the early energy. part of or part of the cast our listeners heard from 
from your brother, John, about the Episcopo Disco, which would be going, mm. uh, which I'm pretty psyched. And by the way, for our listeners, yeah, it I just want it was confirmed what you said that John only listens to music from 1976 to 1984, <laughs> although he has a little stuff from 85 and 86 recently okay. from the Ukraine. Yeah, he just he was called me up the other day to be so excited he'd gotten 25 records from the Ukraine. So, Lord only knows what was in that crate, but I'm Get sure it, it was full rolls in, baby. Get them yeah. out of it. So we've got a couple different articles here. One in the in another weekends, which again I encourage all our listeners to peruse with their morning coffee, you know, Saturday morning or whatever Kamchaka, whatever the um, you know beverage of choices. Uh, good being a good parent will physiologically destroy you, says new research. Hmm. I'm not a parent. Both of you are. Uh, this is. Maybe this will change my wife and I's family planning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, the, the article, I like to always find social science studies that kind of we can use. And, you know, there, there's always a different one. This one is unbelievable because it says that the degree of empathy that you display for your children's suffering has uh, an adverse effect on you physically. So that um, empathetic parents and their children scored higher on uh, psychological testing and seemed, were deemed psychologically healthier. And uh, the children of empathetic parents or more empathetic parents who felt more deeply their children's struggles, they were physically healthier than the children of other kind of parents. But the parents who were more empathetic were uh, in much worse physical shape. And the reason I find it so interesting, it's it just it just is uh, kind of a, um, you couldn't find a better social science study for what we're talking about is that, you know, if we think of God as a father, uh, that there is a cost involved in, you know, identifying with the pain of your child. And a lot of people get very, you know, turned off by the violence and the, and the sort of suffering of, you know, that we see in Lent and Holy Week and Good Friday. But here you have a social science study telling us what theologians have always known is that to be a parent who actually loves their children means that you suffer, that there's a cost exacted on you physically. And it's not just an emotional thing. It's actually a physical cost. And, you know, I don't want to get go overboard here, but... Um, I certainly see it in my uh, on the weight scale in my own life, but um, I, it helps explain, you know, how deeply the gospel is written into the fabric of reality. What do you think, Sarah? Uh, yeah, well, I love what you said about it theologically. It definitely hit me personally and recently mm-hmm. because uh, we have this ongoing conversation with our five-year-old where he says, "I'm bored," and I say, "It's good for your brain to be bored." And I was saying this to one of the women in my life who's sort of a mothering mentor and, you know, is very gentle. And she said to me, no, no, no. What you should say is you should get like his toy stethoscope. You should put it up to his head and you should be like, it sounds like your brain is thinking of something new to do. And I had such a physical reaction because what she's basically saying to me is you need to be more empathetic to him. Right. In that moment. And I, and I had such a physical, like, oh, I definitely can't do that, like, reaction when she told me that. And huh. so when I read this, I was like, oh, like, there is something physical that we that we 
suffer as parents when we are empathetic to our children. I mean, I loved this. I think it's the best thing. (laughs) So if you're an unempathetic parent, you probably feel great, but it'll screw up your kids. Right. Or you can have relatively well-adjusted kids and feel like crap. I think that's the that's the takeaway here. But I mean, <laughs> guys, just... I want you to know, I have two dogs. I've been doing a little yoga. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, my wife and I have some great plans this weekend. So I feel like my inflammation is like, I wish I could impute some to you, some anti-inflammatory. Because yeah. I feel like I'm a walking ball of non-anti-inflammatory material. Yeah, awesome. and I, I'm I'm told that I'm going to die early uh, because I care about my kids. But, you know, I, it can be used in our context. It can uh, certainly be this sort of research can be used as an excuse to even helicopter parent even more where you're not even allowing your children to ha- to suffer. Your uh, Their suffering is somehow you take it all on and then they feel no ability to kind of deal with the world on their own terms and they turn out to be these paralyzed adults. Not that I, I mean, parenting, and this is something Sarah's written about before too, but it's, it's not actually that calculated. I mean, most of it's you're on the fly and um, you're, your free will, it does, isn't really engaged very much. I mean, or the, the, your will period, you're just kind of reacting most of the time. At least that's what I find. So, um, but it, when we're looking at the theological import of something like this, it's just undeniable. And, uh, uh, you know, the incarnation, this is why this is kind of the physicality of it is actually deeply comforting, even the blood, because it means that God uh, cares. Yeah, like it's Marilyn McCord Adams, who is an Episcopal theologian, philosopher, uh, philosophical theologian. She wrote a, a really great book called Christ and Horror. I mean, it's not really the most pick-me-up title. I mean, it's not like Max Lucado. He still moves the stones. But in it, she says, you know, if we were trying to figure out what, like, what we could know about God without any special revelation, we'd we'd know that from the way God's made things, He loves and values somehow diversity, fragility, and finitude. Mm. And I think there's something too, like our capacity to love is because we're finite. You know, like because we can really have. We, there's actually a space where we end and the rest of the world begins. And a really wise pastor once told me, uh, actually my friend, Bill Bohr, who I do another podcast, New Persuasive Words, he told me this, uh, mm-hmm. that one of the beginning paths of spiritual wisdom is learning where you end and the world begins. And I think that's true probably for the empathy thing, like what's appropriate kind of empathy and what's, what's sort of over-identification or under Yeah. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, the thing that they didn't say that is really important, I think, is they didn't say, well, the parents are miserable who are empathetic. They didn't say that. They just said that there's a physical suffering that happens. And um, I don't know. I, I know that when I'm more empathetic as a, as a parent, and I, I know even of God's empathy, that it is building deeper and deeper relationships. you know, and that that's really beautiful, but that is also very sacrificial on these and yeah. neither of you seem miserable to me. So yeah. you must be doing <laughs> something. I so, love my kids. Yeah.
one year, my mom took me school shopping. It was me, my brother, my mom, oh, my pop, and my little sister all hopped in the car. Moving on, uh, there's another interesting piece you highlight in Another Week Ends from The New Yorker about our dangerous leadership obsession. Mm. Leadership is uh, – this is a guy, Joshua Rothman, who I, I kind of like almost everything he writes. Um, he hadn't written much for a while. I guess he was working on this piece. But um, he, the word leadership gets uh, bandied about so much, and there's something called leadership science. There's also – if you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll see tons of books about how to be a leader, what leadership means. And he basically says leadership is a catch-all for every single positive <laughs> you know, thing we, we find in society. and. Um, Anyone can be a leader, even if you're sort of uh, not in a position of leadership. It, it, it is a good barometer for where the culture is. Um, but one of the things that he says that interests me most in there, <clears throat> excuse me, is that um, uh, leadership science has become one of the last ways in which we can talk about morality, uh, virtue, things like that. Uh, when people want to become leaders, you can smuggle, and he calls it a Trojan horse for talking about morality. And, you know, we've written quite a bit about how the there's, there's very little moral vocabulary left in a world that only sort of uh, values subjectivity. So um, leadership is this new thing. And, you know, He's uh, thinking about it in terms of the, the um, uh, presidential uh, campaign and what is it that we value in a leader? What do we want in a leader? Is a leader someone who was born that way or is it something the way they handle processes? It's, it's very, very interesting. But, of, um, of course, what it boils down to when you really get down to uh, it being a catch-all for all of the positive traits that we can think of, well, then it becomes what we want from a leader is all completely conflicting. We want them to be decisive yet flexible. You know, We want them to be um, super uh, detail-oriented and see the big picture. You know, we want them to be extremely skilled at bureaucracy uh, while also um, charismatic and warm. and um, so uh, humanly in touch, <clears throat> which, of course, is just an amazingly um, intricate law that we foist on our world. We and, want Batman. Uh, yeah, we want Batman. Well, actually, we don't even want Batman. We want Batman with a With, with a nice a personality, a sunny yeah, disposition. Yeah. yeah. An upbeat Batman. I don't know. Sarah wrote something. You wrote something incredible recently about the pressure you feel to be a woman leader, that you can't just be. And leader is usually in that context seem to be is like a source of pressure or something, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think everybody has these categories that get placed on them, but I think, you know, in terms of women in leadership, it's that you, you know, you have to have everything together at home and however that works itself out. And no one actually really cares about that, or at least that's how it feels most of the time. <laughs> yeah. But then like in terms of your leadership, like, you know, that has to be, uh, powerful and administrative and nurturing and all, you know, all of these things at once. Um, I don't know when I was reading this, I was reminded of like, we, um, when we've been through the interview process for churches and they're, you know, and they're, they're wanting to interview for a new priest head pastor or whatever. And it's like, you know, we want a talented, a talented administrator. We want an excellent preacher. We want someone who's wonderful with children and teenagers. We want, you know what I mean? They're like, we want someone who can clean toilets. Like, it's like, how is this all going to fit into one part? Like, I don't know what your plan here is, but that person doesn't exist. 
we will disappoint you. Like, that's all I ever want to say in job interviews. Like, I will disappoint whatever this expectation is. That's a great <laughs> sell. In yeah, right? <laughs> hey, let me tell you, I'm going to disappoint you. In job interviews, when they ask me what my biggest weakness is, I usually say kryptonite. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's just, I didn't, have you ever, uh, either of you read the book Failure of Nerve? Uh, no. It's, it's by not. a guy, uh, Friedman, who is mm-hmm. a rabbi like a synagogue planting rabbi and a therapist and consultant the Johnson administration, Bethesda. I mean, he did all this amazing work and a therapist, a leader. But you know, one of the things he said that like we focus on empathy and, and he's thinking not like a compassionate uh, sense of like real human understanding, but in this, he's thinking mirror my feelings back to me. That's what empathy is. And he says, actually the, and this is related to some of, what your dad, David, has said about preaching and also what Aaron Zimmerman on the podcast a few weeks ago kind of echoed. He said, basically, the most important thing for a leader is to know themselves and to know what the reactions going on inside of them are and why. Because what happened then when they're in chronically anxious moments, the leader doesn't feed the anxiety, but they comment. You know, this is kind of the Caesar Milan dog training thing where anxiety, energy mirrors energy. So that, you know, a lot of times when people are saying, I, we want an empathetic leader, they're saying, really, we want somebody that's not self-differentiated, that we can colonize like a virus. Huh. And he says in chronically anxious kind of mode, like, you know, our brains have evolved. Like, it's not like, you know, the reptilian part is the base le- level. Then there's kind of the mammal part, which is, you know, affection, play, other things. And then the frontal lobe is the most rational part. And then w- when we're in high anxious moments, we revert right to reptile, which is fight or flight. Like, you don't see snakes play and frolic or look at yeah. art or you know, like so the challenge for the leader is to sort of um know where their anxiety is and know how they face it and know what's going on in, in their own emotional self-understanding uh and yeah. that will, is kind of the thing that we're so it's a very interesting book on leadership it's my favorite book on leadership um i like it a lot so. it he says that leadership uh it has none of the negative connotation of expertise or experience like leadership is just positive at this point. And um, I couldn't help but think, I mean, Sarah talks about church interviews and I, I think about all the, the clergy I talk to and, you know, um, how crushing it is the transference you receive the second you become the the stand in for God for people and the way that they, because um, they talk about a lot of these uh, search committees want to, uh, or for companies, CEO search committees, they want uh, messiahs, basically. And you you come in, and uh, you're going to disappoint no matter what. And um, if you add spiritual component to it, uh, then it becomes very difficult to do act- any actual ministry. So I, I don't know how anyone survives uh, ordained ministry, frankly. They don't, really, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. Jim Collins' his book, Good to Great, where they yeah. basically study you know, great corporations that outperformed just good ones. And they looked at the CEOs. And one of the things he found was that uh, poor CEOs, like CEOs he didn't find compelling, talked mostly about their successes. Average hmm. level CEOs talked uh, similarly about successes and failures. The best CEOs talked mostly about their failures and what hmm. they learned from them. But I think this is interesting because if you, if you believe in the concept of grace, then I think you can catalog failure in a way that's not totalitizing or... But if you're kind of under the yoke of like performanceism and a legalistic kind of I got to succeed, then it's almost impossible to talk about your failures because you've always yeah. got or learn from them because you always have to be convincing everybody that you're succeeding. Right. 
<laughs> spinning every every year into a major victory. Exactly. This yeah. is why, like the O'Reilly Show, we're in the nose spins. So, Sarah, you've got a TV recommendation based on something that pops up in another weekend's Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> yes. No, I it's have a, never watched this show. Sell me on it right show. now. Go. So it's Lisa Vanderpump's uh, restaurant, which is called Sir, which is which means. Um, oh, David, do you remember sexy? Uh, unique. Unique. <laughs> Sexy, unique restaurant, yeah. I think. Yeah. And um, so it's at Lisa Vanderpump is from one of the Housewives franchises in California. Is it Beverly Hills? I think it's about. Yeah, it's Beverly Hills. And she has this restaurant and it's full of really hot young people. And she's mostly, you know, she's sort of in it, but it's really about the young, young, hot people. Anyway, this piece is so great because they talk about um, the writer talks about how most reality television shows, the characters are on a trajectory, like my most favorite show, The Bachelor, right? There's an end game. You get the guy. Um, but this one, even though it seemed to start that way, that these young people had these goals and ambitions and they were headed in this direction, one of them was going to be, a, you know, like a sweater designer, which is awesome. Um, at this point, that stuff has just been given up. And now the show is just kind of in this place of um, stasis, which the writer talked about how great that was. And I love she's she talked about sort of using the show as a jumping off point for our American fixation on growth and progress and things getting better, you know, like a la Biggest Loser kind of stuff. Uh, and I love what she said, uh, it, that Vanderpump Rules presents stasis as a culturally viable, emotionally necessary option. <laughs> that was wow. brilliant. Emotionally necessary. Like, she's like, sometimes you just need to take a break. And this is a show that tells you it's okay. You know, you can take a break. <laughs> Pressure's off. So, yeah, it's a, I mean, I, t I totally watch this show. They're all sleeping together. They're all yelling at each other. They're serving food and cool clothes. Like, you should watch it. So you've got sex, mm -hmm. conflict, and stasis. Yeah. And cool clothes. I'm in. Yeah. I mean, you've sold yeah. me. I am, I am done. Right. This is on Bravo? Yeah, it's on Bravo. I love it. But you know, it's, who is Millionaire Matchmaker? Wasn't she on Bravo, oh, too? Patty Stanger. Is My wife and I have set more people up than her. I'm like, why is she the Millionaire Matchmaker? No one ever winds up matched. No, no. no. But, that's, that's a great show, too. It's great, but I'm just like, why aren't yes. you called Millionaire Failed ma Millionaire Matchmaker that doesn't succeed? It's, it, there needs to be something ironic in the title to let you know. Don't come on here if you want to see couples make it. <laughs> like if you want to feel better about your own religious or about your own uh, relational like you know mishaps, then come on. You know the other thing that uh, like it comes to mind as you're talking. I, I, my wife and I have several friends who are dating, you know, single and online with things like Tinder and whatnot. And I feel like you know 
before all this technology, when people were kind of living the single life, there's maybe a, a handful, 10% of guys that could really be players and kind of hurt women and, and, and maybe vice versa with females. But now with this Tinder and everything, the guys don't have to for rejection. It's like giving rogue nations nuclear weapons. Like 70% of the guys now can, you know, carry, you know, string women along. And else. it's like, we need like a UN declar a relational declaration. We need to control these apps <laughs> for the, for the relational health of, uh, cause it's crazy how guys that normally wouldn't have any game at all. Because they'd yeah, have right. no now have all this confidence and they're swiping and they're rejecting right. and it's just a fascinating. Right. It's thing. like all men are now like that, like that last elderly guy in like a retirement home. You know what I mean? Yes. Like how you walk in a retirement home and there's like 80 women and like three dudes and they're like the ballers. You know, like finally they've arrived. <laughs> you know, but that's like every guy now because they have these apps and they can totally manipulate women. Yeah, it's uh, awful. Lord oh. have mercy. I never want to be single. So all you single people out there, it's great activity. Get your Tinder app out and then watch Vanderpump. Yeah. Great, great, great uh, advice from Mockingbird Ministries. Exactly. exactly. Making the world a holier people. place. We don't have to right. deal with it. Um, oh, God. Do you know what? Can I make a confession? Mm. My wife and I, laying in bed one night, both downloaded Tinder to see who it would pair us up with. Like, if we, if we were bad. Like, so... She was getting these like young studs in the gym. I'm getting like single moms with like no teeth in the minivan. I'm like, I'm not a loser. I'm like, babe, <laughs> Tinder's telling you you married a loser. But um, like, oh, yeah, it's very not. Yeah, I don't know. So anyway, that's like a confession that maybe I'll edit out. Maybe I won't. Uh, and also on the fun side, I'm not an Episcopalian, but I have Episcopal sympathies. But both of you are, as are many of our listeners. We found a Tumblr Episcopal Skeletor. Yes. It's about, it's about you know, Skeletor from He-Man um, really coming to grips with his Anglican uh, upbringing or sympathies, I think is what it says. Fringer became the mighty battle cat, and I became He-Man. The most powerful man in the universe. Only three others share this secret. Our friends, the Sorceress, Man-at-Arms, and Orko. Together, we defend Castle Greyskull from the evil forces of Skeletor. It's, uh... It's very funny. It's one of these things, you know, I, I joke, but every time, uh, you know, the internet just gets too much and you, you sit there and the, you know, debates are happening and, you know, Donald Trump and all this stuff and everyone's just yelling at each other. And then something like Episcopal Skeletor comes along and somehow it all seems like it's worth it, you know, because there's no other possible way this would have ever come to light unless someone behind a computer is like, hey, I, got, I really, <laughs> this is a good idea. Uh, Episcopal jokes and, uh, you know, Skeletor. So they have, you know, like, uh, like little bits of the liturgy, you know, uh, Skeletor is, is standing next to these two enormous uh, urns that are spitting fire. And he says, you know, where's this incense, incense coming from? We're, we're low church. <laughs> uh, and it, I, you can't actually, you know, like memes, generally speaking, you can't actually translate them. You can't talk about them. You just have to see them. You know, they're not that funny when you describe it. But 
I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm a huge nerd, but I found this to be really funny. What do you think, Sarah? I think it's hilarious. I mean, I, I it's a joke about open communion, which is always a hot topic in the Episcopal Church. It was like when everyone was drinking too much in seminary, we would all just fight about open <laughs> communion, which is if I don't want to like I hate using like secret language. Open communion just means these rules about who gets allowed to take communion based on whether or not they're baptized. So some churches, it's like you have to be baptized. And so we call that closed communion. And open communion is like everyone can come up to the table. So anyway, there are a lot of in like uninteresting church fights that happen about open communion. I thought it was funny because uh, it just reminded me of the way that some churches are sort of this is I shouldn't say this is funny, but it is are sort of desperately like, we welcome you, come to our church, like with this intensity that just totally freaks people out, you know? Like I was just talking to one of my friends who's moving to Austin and she and her husband are both <laughs> in their 20s and they're super involved at the Village Bonnie Church in yeah, um, oh my gosh. Atlanta, but they're moving to Austin. She's like, yeah, we're going to be church shopping. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's going to be terrifying for you. Like a couple in their late 20s walking into churches, like people are going to be like, come to our church, you know? So. Oh my God. <laughs> I love doing that. I, my wife doesn't like as much. Like, but I, when you have a Sunday off, I love being a church visitor. I'm like, a, I feel like a mystery shopper. Like, it's so much fun. Like, I, I enjoy it. Like, it's such a good time. Uh, I like it's a, I was at a church. I visited a church in the San Diego area several years ago, and it was a reformed church, kind of conservative, evangelical, reform, you know, <laughs> very liturgical. But the elders interviewed me before they, any Christian was welcome to take communion, but they interviewed me, made sure I was baptized. I had to say I was at a church that affirmed the Apostles' Creed that was, I was like, wow. I mean, I don't know that I like this, but I respect it. <laughs> it's like it's like in a, in a few right. good men with Jack Nicholson right. says, "You want me on that wall? You need me on that wall." I said, "I don't think I go to church here, but I'm glad somebody does this out there, <laughs> just somewhere." Like, yeah, you know, it's Gitmo. It's the uh, wow. I have to say about this, I was a huge He-Man fan as a kid, mm -hmm. like huge. Uh, I watched like every episode for a year, for like for a couple of years. That was my favorite mm -hmm. toys. Here's what I never understood about He-Man. Okay. Adam, the prince, right? First off, it's a very sparsely populated planet they live on. There's only like a handful of people, it seems like. it's. I never got that. The other thing is, when, you know, he pulls out the, the you know, the sword and by the power of Skull, he gets tan, right? His hair gets a little darker. He gets a little more, but not much more muscular. It's just sort of like a Clark Kent Superman thing. But then when he points the sword at the cat, who's a coward and jittery and all that, all of a sudden, it's a whole new personality. Like, all right, let's go. That's Skeletor. He's like, oh, we can't go now. And then he tried. So it's amazing. Like, why does Prince Adam have the same personality, but not the the tiger? Well, that's a, I mean, these are these are questions we should be asking. I, I don't. Um, <laughs> I think uh, we should ask our listeners to um, maybe put forth some theories and we'll get, get back to us. You know, maybe this is a picture of. The transformative power of imputation. Yeah, I was going to say, right? I was say <laughs> something about imputation. Yeah, right. that, you know, like that basically it's, you know, when somebody becomes something really different than they are, I mean, different in the sense of their best self, mm -hmm. because they're treated like they're like a, like the, a version of their best self, um, as opposed to like 
reinforcing. So what you're saying is Prince Adam is closer to his best self already than the cat whose name we can't remember, who's very far away from it, but they're both being imputed their best self. Is that what you're saying? Maybe something along those lines. Skeletor (laughs) gets imputed nothing. I mean, he's just, uh, he's just very interesting. Okay. We're making progress. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, gosh. I was watching some of them with my wife, Lindy, a couple of months ago. I was like, you never saw He-Man? So she is a good wife. Ah, she loves It's it. like when you watch uh, G.I. Joe, the old G.I. Joes. They make absolutely no sense. Like, zero sense. Yeah. Some guy in Korea was making these for kids uh, in America, and, like, we were eating it up. But they, they have no continuity, uh, no logic. I mean, it's just like one toy advertisement after another. And maybe that's enough for the human... There was logic when they made Serpentor. <laughs> that was a good story. Line. Right, I think we're about to lose Sarah here, so I don't want to like uh, yeah, keep going. Yeah, okay, we're, we're a little geeky there. <laughs> but thanks, you know, the, and actually Serpentor was an attempt at leadership. They were trying to get the DNA of Napoleon and Stalin and all these guys into one See? leader. But yeah, well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, some We've gone from the ridiculous to the sublime. <laughs> I would encourage everyone to... Take a look at another weekend's because we mentioned just some of the highlights, and you can find the link to Episcopal Skeletor there. Yes, we. <laughs> Thanks for sitting in today, gang. Thank you, Thank Scott. You. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Thanks Dave. Have a great yeah. weekend. Wishing all of you, our listeners, a great weekend as well. Thanks again for listening to the Mockingcast. If you like what you heard, please stop by iTunes, give us a rating and a review. And as always, all the content we discuss can be found on our website, mbird.com. 